Hey guys, and welcome to episode number 85 of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Today, you're joined by your hosts, Tierra and Jack, and we have another Q&A for you guys. So before we get into the questions, we wanted to remind you guys that if you do enjoy these episodes, please remember to repost them onto your Instagram stories and leave a review if you're listening on iTunes. Also, if you are interested in our coaching services, you can head over to our website, www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com. You can Google that or just head over to our Instagram bios and click the link. And we just wanted to reiterate that we don't just cater for physique athletes, we cater for everybody. So just have a look at our services, dietetic consults, just normal training and nutrition coaching, comp prep services, of course. And don't hesitate to leave an inquiry or send us an email. Awesome. All right. So getting straight into today's episode, this first question, it says, are glycogen stores dependent on muscle mass? For example, the more muscle you have, the more glycogen. Yeah. So the short answer is yes. Usually the more muscle you have, the more glycogen you'll have. And there is fortunately some research to basically provide us with some explanations. And we know that glycogen is stored primarily in the muscle and also the liver as well. So typically muscles have, for a 70 kilo person, male or female, you typically store about 500 grams of glycogen and about 100 grams of liver glycogen. However, as we said, the more muscle you have, the more glycogen you'll store. So it is actually approximately one to 2% of your muscle weight will be glycogen. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you were an incredibly talented athlete and genetically gifted and you worked very, very hard and you had like 50 kilograms of muscle, right? So let's say that 1% of all of that muscle would have been glycogen for 50 kilograms worth of muscle. That would be 500 grams of glycogen stored in your body. But let's say that you were able to store 2% of glycogen in your 50 kilograms of muscle. That would be be 1000 grams of glycogen stored in your body. But I think it's really important to, uh, you know, differentiate, especially for example, if you get a DEXA scan, right? It's pretty much going to give you your fat mass. It's going to give you your bone mineral density, and it's going to give you your lean body mass. But we have to remember that there's a difference between just skeletal muscle mass and lean body mass on a DEXA scan. You know, lean body mass is essentially anything that's not fat. So for example, if your DEXA scan comes back and it says that you have like 60 kilograms worth of lean body mass, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have 60 kilograms of pure skeletal muscle. Like who knows, you know, maybe, maybe you do. I'm not, <laughs> not discriminating against the people who are super duper muscly, but I'm just saying it's probably not as likely. So yeah, that's the thing. So how would you, that's like, you would need to know your actual amount of skeletal muscle to truly know how much carbohydrates you could store. But it just makes sense. You know, if, more muscly people, right, can store more glycogen. That's why generally bigger people can handle higher carbohydrate loads. So, you know, a big guy like Jack could handle something like 800 grams of carbohydrates per day. Whereas, you know, a small bikini competitor, she might only be able to handle something like 200 or 250 grams of carbohydrates per day because they're completely different human beings with completely different body sizes, body weights, and total skeletal muscle mass. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense when you put it like that. And the bigger you are, 
as long as it's muscle, the, the more glycogen you can store. Yeah, and we have to remember that with every gram of glycogen stored, you are going to store around three grams worth of water as well. So that's going to contribute to that total weight. Uh, and I guess the last thing, you know, is just that if you truly want to maximize your glycogen stores, you generally have to go through a period of carbohydrate loading. So I'm sure you guys would have heard about this, you know, in, for example, for endurance runners, right? If someone wants to carbohydrate load for a big endurance event like a marathon, they're generally prescribed that they need to consume anywhere between like 8 to 12 grams per kilogram of body weight per day. Uh, in order to fully synthesize their glycogen stores and usually do that around over a 48 hour period. But for bodybuilders, you know, and physique athletes and stuff like that, it's generally closer to that, like anywhere probably between like four to seven grams per kilogram of body weight per day to fully synthesize and maximize your glycogen stores. But at the same time, it's interesting because they actually put that in terms of body weight, Jack. And I guess that's just because that's the easiest way because they don't truly know people's actual skeletal muscle mass. But I guess an actually more accurate way to do that if, would be if we could somehow determine someone's actual skeletal muscle mass amount. And then you could actually determine, all right, how many carbohydrates can you handle? But there's so many other factors that play into it, obviously, because you're not just storing all of your carbohydrates as glycogen, as energy. You're also simultaneously burning them as fuel, too. So you have to take that into account. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it might just be a waste of money to, yeah. <laughs> to determine that. Yeah, but personally, I have never known anyone who can, you know, load on like something anywhere, even 10 to 12 grams per kilogram per day. That's a hell of a lot of carbohydrates. That is a lot of carbohydrates. That's more than you've ever consumed, right? Even yeah. 90 kilograms, you know, or over 90 kilograms. If you were consuming 10 grams per kilogram per day, that's over 900 grams per day. Man, imagine if you even went up to that 12 grams per kilo. That's that's a lot of taters, you know, that's a lot of taters and that's a lot of Gatorade. So, <laughs> wow. Uh, it's almost like, it's almost fortunate that some people can load on less because that would just be a lot of gastrointestinal discomfort, I would imagine. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think that would be more Tour de France and marathon runners maybe. Yeah, rather than uh, getting on a bodybuilding stage. <laughs> yeah. So this next question is about a topic we've got asked about a few times over the last few months. And we just haven't gotten around to answering it yet. So it's about orthorexia and people are just wondering what that term means and what it entails really. Yeah, so orthorexia, it's quite an interesting one. So orthorexia, it's pretty much a non-classified eating disorder. The term's actually been around since like 1998. So almost as long as we've both been alive. So it's been around for a long time, but Essentially, orthorexia, it is an obsession with healthy eating, and it's an obsession with the purity and the quality of food. And the reason why it's actually not classified as an eating disorder, something like similar to anorexia nervosa or a binge eating disorder, right, is because it's actually so difficult to actually meet a certain criteria to be classified as, okay, you are orthorexic because some people actually might know, not know this, but the DSM-5, it's essentially this manual for different psychiatric disorders. So things like anorexia, bulimia, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, you actually need to meet very, very specific criteria in order to be diagnosed with those disorders. 
But orthorexia, man, there's just this blurred line, right? Because how do you actually differentiate between whether someone is orthorexic or if someone's just health conscious, you know? That's, it's very, very difficult. But, uh, you know, there are a few signs and symptoms for, you know, if determining whether or not someone might be displaying signs of being orthorexic. So Jack, what are some of those? Yeah, so as Tierra said, it can be difficult to kind of differentiate between someone who does have orthorexia and someone who is just health conscious. So I think you'll find that when I read some of these out, like some of these will coincide with um, what you're doing, what one of you listeners might be doing as is. What we're doing as well. Yeah. You know? it's, I think that anyone who's probably involved in the health and fitness industry, someone who's a dietitian and nutritionist, we probably all have tinges of orthorexia. And that's the thing as well is like, are we just being health conscious or are we being orthorexic? Mm. But yeah, you could say the same potentially about like obsessive compulsive disorder. Like mm-hmm. everyone who goes to the gym regularly or tracks their nutrition, like that's a bit OCD. Yeah, um, and that's the interesting thing as well. They found that people who they think are orthorexic, they usually have OCD as well. So mm. they kind of go hand in hand for sure. So a few of these symptoms are compulsive checking of ingredient lists and nutritional labels, an increase in concern about the health of ingredients, cutting out an increased number of food groups, an inability to eat anything but a narrow group of foods that are deemed healthy or pure, unusual interest in the health of what others are eating, spending hours per day thinking about what food might be served at upcoming events, showing high levels of distress when safe or healthy foods aren't available, obsessive following of food and healthy lifestyle blogs on Twitter and Instagram, body image concerns may or may not be present. Mm. And we did get that information from the National Eating Disorder Organization, if anyone wants to go there for reference. But absolutely, a lot of those signs and symptoms you just read off, you know, they sound like very common tendencies for people that we know in the health and fitness industry, including ourselves, and especially a lot of things that competitors will go Mm. through. Anyone who's engaging in any sort of dietary manipulation will go through, right? Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting because I guess a lot of people, like especially quite a few of those would be elevated in a competition preparation and not always consciously as well. Like it, it's, I wonder if it would still be classified as orthorexia, even though there's not really a classification, mm-hmm. if it's for a specific goal. Like if you're an athlete doing something, so you have to be worried about what's upcoming at an yeah. event or you have to be tracking things, you have to be looking at the ingredients potentially like is that still orthorexia or exactly because like we talk about if you have specific goals sometimes you have to do specific things and man like where do you draw the line like if i go out to a restaurant and i ask the waitress like oh hey you know would it would you be all right if i swapped my french fries in this meal for a side salad does that make me orthorexic or does that just make me more health conscious? Or if Mm. I go to the grocery store, if I buy olive oil instead of canola oil, does that make me orthorexic? Like where do you draw the line between just implementing your knowledge surrounding nutrition and trying to live a healthy lifestyle without someone pointing a finger at you and going like, you have a eating disorder, right? So man, that's the thing. I even remember it was the very uh, first nutrition science course I ever took at uni. It was in second year, right? And my professor, she was talking about this topic. This was back in 2016. And she was even saying like, we really don't know how to diagnose 
this because we don't know where to draw the line. Like, and she was saying herself, like, am I orthorexic because I'm a nutrition science professor, right? And I try to implement eating healthy eating practices because this is just part of my career and part of my passion and my lifestyle. Like, man, mm. it's uh, it's tough, but definitely. With a few of those, I think it is, you know, if food is causing you anxiety, right? And if your friends invite you out for dinner, but, you know, you want to stay home and just be able to eat your very specific foods and weigh out your foods and, you know, it's almost like self-isolating, right? And you don't want to engage in social situations. I think that might be tending more toward the side of orthorexia rather than if you just went out for dinner with your friends, looked at the menu and tried to be health conscious and chose an appropriate meal so that you could still socialize, but something that aligns with your goals and something that makes you feel good and nourished, right? So there's that line too, but man, it's uh, it's mixed. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, as it's, it's a blurred line at the end of the day. And I mean, I've, we both probably had varying degrees of orthorexia in the past and mm-hmm. I, I think I'm pretty normal now. Obviously, I'm not normal compared to the average person, but mm-hmm. I don't get anxiety over food. Like I don't worry about things like that. Like I purely do it from a, I guess, a performance and an athletic standpoint. Mm-hmm. Like say if we're going out to dinner, I'll try and prepare for that, but it won't be out of a place of anxiety or worry. Mm-hmm. It'll purely be okay, I have these goals, so I need to do some modifications to continue to achieve them compared to in the past when I was like, oh shit, I don't want to have extra oil or I don't want to, I don't want to be in the dark about, am I still going to hit my calories or I'm going to have to have white pasta instead of brown pasta. It's definitely not like that anymore. So I think I'm, I'm very normal in that sense now. So I'll purely do it out of a I would say like an objective rather than a subjective standpoint. Yeah. And I think I'm the exact same. You know, I think that actually going to university and learning about nutrition science and dietetics, that incredibly helped me overcome my own disordered eating patterns and overcome a lot of my own orthorexia too, because I used to do all a lot of these things to the absolute extreme. You know, I used to, you know, my parents would be cooking dinner, right? And my dad would make this big, beautiful stir fry with lots of vegetables and some lean meats. And then he would want to add, you know, a tablespoon of oyster sauce. And I'd be that person that would go up there and I would read the ingredient list on the oyster sauce. And I'd be like, no, this has sugar in it. That means that if you add this to the meal, the entire meal is bad and unhealthy and I'm not going to eat it right? Because of one little ingredient, right? Apparently sugar in the oyster sauce ruined all the health benefits of the vegetables and the meat, right? That was my way of thinking. I'd say that would, that was very orthorexic and, uh, I could apply that to a lot of different things. And I'm sure a lot of people can probably relate to that because, you know, it it is quite common when you start to become engaged in health and fitness, you, it is very easy to start creating these rules of good and bad, right and wrong. And it's much easier to create them than to break them. But it is very important, you know, knowledge is power. And uh, I think to really educate yourself and understand that nutrition is very, very complex and it shouldn't rule your life, you know? Like life is so freaking wonderful and food is such a huge component of life and you shouldn't be approaching every single social situation that involves food with these fears of anxiety, right? Around food, because man, life's just not gonna be very pleasant in that sense. But yeah, interestingly, the actual treatment for orthorexia is 
a lot of psychology. So actually working alongside a psychologist and actually, you know, uh, overcoming those food fears and actually making yourself eat those foods, right? And exposing yourself to those foods. I'm pretty sure it's called exposure therapy. And then proving to yourself that like, whoa, I can eat the vegetable surf fry with a little bit of oyster sauce in it. And I actually feel really good, you know, and I maintain my body composition. I trained hard the next day and I feel just fine. My digestion was fine. Like, look, I didn't die, right? Mm. So overcoming that. And uh, also another thing is that orthorexia, I think it's really important to actually work alongside a dietitian too, because again, creating these rules of foods are good and bad. Just like Jack said, it's very easy to start cutting out whole food groups. You start cutting out all grains, you start cutting out dairy, you start cutting out all animal products, meats, fruit, whatever. It's actually, even though you have intentions to be healthy, you can actually become malnourished, unfortunately. So uh, working alongside a dietitian, you know, and ensuring that you are getting all of the essential nutrients in appropriate amounts in your diet to ensure that you are nourished and healthy. But yeah, hopefully you guys have a little bit more insight now into what it means to be orthorexic and what orthorexia is and why it actually is so difficult to actually classify it as an eating disorder. But Jack, it should be interesting. You know, it's been 22 years. It still hasn't been in the DSM-5 or the, the manual itself. So if in our lifetime it ever actually is diagnosed as an actual eating disorder. Yeah, I guess this is a controversial point that I want to raise. Like, just as if you would, a bodybuilder, as a bodybuilder, if I'm going to see an allied health professional, like a physio, I haven't seen a, I haven't actually seen a dietitian or a psychologist. <laughs> You're looking at from, me right now. <laughs> and, but if I want to see a physio, I want it to be someone who has experience with bodybuilding or powerlifting. Mm-hmm. And if you, do you think if you had a eating disorder, like let's say if you did get classified with orthorexia, would you want to see a dietitian or a psychologist or psychiatrist that has experience with bodybuilding absolutely yes yeah. <laughs> well that's the thing like you need someone to understand where you're coming from mm. right you need you need someone to, to be able to understand purely your lifestyle and your line of thinking and i think that's why it's actually almost important that perhaps the psychologist or has gone through it themselves almost right so they can really empathize with you and understand what you're actually talking about because that's the thing right with that's the difference between like seeing a hospital physio versus a sports physio right Mm. if you go to see a hospital physio as an athlete and you're like oh i have lower back pain and they're used to seeing like a chronically ill elderly population right they're gonna be like oh you just shouldn't use your back you know you should just stop exercising till that thing gets better (laughs) rather than going and seeing an actual sports physio who maybe engages in weightlifting themselves and they're like no, 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 you know, you can still train. Let's just work around this, right? They understand where you're coming from. So I think that if you are, a, like, you're specializing in a certain area, you should see a health professional who also specializes in that area. Yeah, I, I agree, and that's that's what I would do as well. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what you do do. That's what you do do. Yes. <laughs> do, do, do. Yes, in terms of the physiotherapy aspect, and I guess you're a dietitian. I, yeah. I see you occasionally, so... <laughs> Once in a while. <laughs> Let's move on to the next question, though. All right. Okay, so this next question, it's in relation to cardio, one of our favorite topics, of course. But this one says, how much cardio is too much if you're trying to build muscle? So this is a question that we get asked a lot. Mm-hmm. And 
I think we might have answered it before. We, To be honest, we probably didn't do the most amazing job. We yeah. gave quite a general answer. Mm-hmm. So this sparked our interest this week because basically this uh, program, Mass, which Tierra has a subscription for, the monthly application in strength sports, it's run by some very, very great minds mm-hmm. in the fitness industry. And they basically do a review of the literature every month and they bring out a review of certain articles. And this... This a more recent article was actually on cardiovascular training and combined with weight resistance training. Yeah, so pretty much Mass highly recommends subscribing, by the way. It's probably one of the best resources if you're actually interested in all of the emerging research in you know strength sports, physique sports, nutrition, sports nutrition, everything. It's written by like Greg Knuckles, Mike Zerdos, Eric Trexler, Eric Helms. So freaking awesome resource, okay? Highly recommend. Uh, But yeah, so pretty much here they're talking about if you are an athlete and you want to do some resistance training and some cardio, how do you mitigate the interference effect? So how do you reduce the effect of how that cardio could potentially negatively impact your resistance training performance? So they've actually written up this really nice table. So we're pretty much just going to refer to that here. Mm. So The first one is the modality of cardio. So what are you actually doing to get your heart beating? What they actually recommend is to choose something like cycling or a lower impact modality, something like using the elliptical or actually swimming or rowing rather than doing something like going out for a run. And the reason for that is because running actually has a really high eccentric component compared to something like cycling or swimming. And when you eccentrically stretch a muscle, so that's the stretching component of a muscle, it's actually more likely to cause a lot more muscle damage. So if you are choosing to do cardio, pretty much do something other than running is pretty much what they recommend. Yeah, so the next sort of criteria that they have is the duration. And essentially they recommend sticking between 20 to 30 minutes is ideal and definitely no longer than 60 minutes. Mm -hmm. And the rationale they give for that is basically that when we do more aerobic training, we can kind of cause a tendency to fiber type one recruitment Mm -hmm. and even a conversion to that style. And resistance training is definitely more favorable for type two fibers, which are more anaerobic, more explosive, Mm -hmm. and they have a higher pretense intensity for muscle growth as well. Absolutely. That's the thing. And as well, if you're doing over 60 minutes of cardio at a time, right, that's that's dipping into the probably similar amount of time that you're actually spending resistance training. And mm. I don't think that if you're if you're in an athlete, right, you should definitely be spending a hell of a lot more time resistance training rather than doing cardio. I think a good recommendation is like for the amount of time spent resistance training, only do like maybe one third or one quarter of mm. that actually doing extra cardiovascular work. It definitely yeah. shouldn't be a one to one. Like yeah, are I you think, a bodybuilder or are you a runner? <laughs> yeah, you have to kind of ask yourself why you are running. If you're doing it because you enjoy it, that's, that's great. Then that's a good reason. Mm-hmm. That's not I would do. That's not why I would do cardiovascular work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would do it purely if for my health and if it, if my resistance training was taking a toll mm-hmm. due to me being unfit or my heart rate was very high. So it's each to their own, and just need it. Like if you're trying to be a Mr. Olympia, then you're doing sixty minutes of cardiovascular work then every day (laughs) yeah then that's a lot (laughs) yeah exactly all right so now we're moving on to proximity to lifting so pretty much what they recommend is that you want to avoid performing aerobic exercise 
right before lifting, or if you can, try to avoid it on the same day that you lift. So it's preferable that if you could actually split up your cardio sessions and your lifting sessions by at least 24 hours. So let's say that you were lifting four to five days per week, right? That means that you would have two to three rest days. Perhaps if you were doing cardiovascular work, try to schedule that on your rest days, right? Especially if it's a light form of work. If you're going, you know, on the, on the bike for 20 or 30 minutes, like you can do that on a rest day, even though you're technically resting, right? It's a low modality of exercise. So it's not, I, I would argue that wouldn't necessarily dip into your recovery. If you're exercising on a bike for 20 minutes on a rest day over the period of 24 hours, right? And you know, further to that, pretty much what they've shown is that performing aerobic exercise right before you lift can actually reduce your volume performance by up to 10% in the next eight hours following that aerobic training session, which kind of makes sense. You know, if you're doing a bunch of exercise, burning through some muscle glycogen, and then you try to go and lift, you're probably not going to be able to lift as much weight for as many reps, potentially for as many sets either. So, and there's actually another meta-analysis that's actually shown that if you are doing cardiovascular work, it's actually more preferential that you do it following your resistance training session rather than right before your resistance training session. And it dips in there again with the mus muscle glycogen, but also just fatiguing yourself before you're actually going to, you know, go and try to lift some heavy weights for a few hours. Yeah. So this next criteria is one that I was actually kind of surprised about and basically in regards to intensity. So they actually advocate for higher intensity, more hit style training. So high intensity interval training, as opposed to steady state aerobic exercise. And the rationale they gave for that was basically because it employs the similar en energy system. So like the anaerobic energy system, and it basically involves similar neuromuscular and cellular adaptations as res resistance training. Mm -hmm. So they did say this had some limitations and I'm guessing that the recovery aspect potentially. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, so for example, if you were again, going to go and do some sort of full body hit training session as well, I'd imagine that there would be a lot of eccentric contractions there too. You know, mm. imagine if you were doing a bunch of jump squats, you know, or like a bunch of slam balls or something like well, that. Well, I'm assuming that they're doing it in line with the modalities they recommended, like the elliptical, like hit mm -hmm. on the elliptical. Oh, of course. Well, that makes a lot of sense too. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. But I just like, can't imagine doing like you train full body and then doing hit mm -hmm. as well. Or I am pretty wrecked after two leg days trying yeah. to fit hit in somewhere. To be honest, I think for both of us training hard in the gym and doing steps and playing fetch with our dogs, that's <laughs> enough for us. I go for a swim maybe once a week, you know, but, uh, each to their own, you know, but I think this is still good quality information. And I th actually, we have to remember this isn't necessarily for maximizing your physique. This is just, if you do want to fit in, cardiovascular work mm -hmm. this is what they would recommend yeah exactly. so it's not they're not saying you have to do this if you want to be the most most jacked they're saying this is if you do want to combine it with resistance, resistance training this is what they recommend yeah and just so that so that pretty much what they've shown is that resistance training is always going to benefit an endurance athlete so someone who's doing a lot of cardiovascular work having more strength right that's always going to benefit that type of athlete but on the flip side, doing a hell of a lot of cardiovascular work, yes, it's going to improve the health of your cardiovascular system, your heart and your respiratory system, which is so freaking incredibly important. 
but doing a lot of cardiovascular work is not going to benefit a resistance trained athlete in the same way that strength training will improve an athlete like an endurance athlete's performance, if that Mm. makes sense. Yeah. So I guess the very last thing to touch on is just nutrition. So pretty much what they've recommended is that if you were to do cardiovascular training and resistance training on the same day, your best bet is to eat at maintenance calories. If you were training twice a day, that's going to be one of the best ways to mitigate any negative interference effects. And especially pretty much if you are in a caloric surplus and you're very well nourished, then it pretty much minimizes or basically makes any sort of interference effect disappear. But the thing is, is that a lot of people will generally perform more cardiovascular work when they are endeavoring to lose some weight right change their body composition combined with resistance training so eating at maintenance calories and you know eating a caloric surplus doesn't necessarily align with that so again there's always caveats to this so Mm. yeah (laughs) yeah and i would say if you can just try and stick to daily steps Mm -hmm. in your competition prep yeah absolutely because then Combining resistance, uh, combining resistance training with that cardiovascular work, like if you're already in a calorie deficit, then training performance may be compromised mm-hmm. and then adding extra work on top of that might further impair it. So yeah. something but to think about. I guess just the final thing to take into consideration is that they did say, you know, if you are performing cardiovascular work, you're training volume can be decreased by it within the next eight hours. But for example, if you wake up first thing in the morning and you do 20 or 30 minutes of cardio, right? And then you're training well, eight hours after that, you're training later, you're doing your resistance training session at nighttime or in the late afternoon, a really important thing is to try to resynthesize some glycogen. So after that cardiovascular session in the morning, definitely try to have the majority of your carbohydrates during the day before that resistance training session. I'd say around 75% of your total daily carbs and then perform your resistance training session. That will help you synthesize some more glycogen and uh, yeah, hopefully have better performance during that session too. So take those things into account. But yeah, hopefully that was a uh, pretty succinct. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think it was as succinct we could have done it. Great. But yeah, guys, seriously, check out Mass. What an awesome resource. All right. So moving on to the last question of the day. This one says, what's the best advice you would give someone who's thinking of competing in physique at 21? And I guess we can kind of make this a bit more broad, like not just physique, but I guess bodybuilding in general. Yeah. And it applies well to us because we competed when we were just about to turn 21 mm-hmm. or the year we turned 21. So that works well. So there's definitely a lot we can say. Overall, you kind of just want to make it a good experience since mm-hmm. it's your first comp- competition. You, If anything, this would be the time when you invest in help, even though it might seem that, oh, I might, might get a coach later down the line when I really want to maximize that season, get a good off season mm-hmm. and try and be more competitive. But this kind of sets the scene for you in terms of bodybuilding and like mm-hmm. you want not just the, the way that he or she will help you, but also like being part of a good team, someone who, who will provide emotional support along the way, be part of a community as well. And like if you're just coaching yourself and you might not go to the posing workshops or you might not be really into the scene mm-hmm. compared to being part of a team. 
Yeah, man, having a good support network, I swear, is like number one up there with trying to maximize your health, right? Trying to maximize your health, bring your best physique, but having a really good, strong support network, it just, it seriously makes a world of difference. Mm, Yeah, it really does. And if we can go into like the finer details, I guess a few things that we look with our clients to tick off prior to them competing. So one, obviously like having enough muscularity Mm -hmm. and ensuring they kind of like fit the criteria. So for example, someone who might come to me say, okay, I want to do bodybuilding and I really want to compete next year. Then I might say, okay, we, we can still compete if we tick off those other boxes, but it might not be in, in bodybuilding. It might be like men's fitness or men's Mm -hmm. physique. So that that's one example. Another one is having the correct foundation in terms of the right approach to nutrition, um, the right approach to training, the right approach to family and friends, financial situation, Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff, because it's important to reiterate how demanding competition prep is and how much... It's very serious, you know? It's not a five-kilometer fun run in the park on a Saturday. Like, it's a bodybuilding show. It's a big endeavor. You know, it's Mm. a huge commitment. Yeah, and that's something I regularly stress, almost to the point of like, okay, yeah, Jack, you can kind of shut up now. (laughs) I I always stress that it is going to be tough. Mm -hmm. Towards the end, you are going to feel like, why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. You're going to feel pretty crappy and... Yeah, it's a, it's a tough. So you got to make sure that you have good finances to be able to afford all of it. You got to pay for your tan, your coach, the the competition itself, any flights if you go to nationals, all that kind of stuff. It really does add up. Making sure that if you live at home or with other people, they're on board with it too. If you're at uni, making sure that you can deal with like four courses plus your comp prep plus a plus a casual job if you have one if you work a nine to five ensuring that you can fit all of that in if you have kids all that kind of stuff so it really does add up yeah so there is a hell of a lot to consider and something else that i want to say that i think is so important is before you ever commit to competing in a show you need to have a healthy relationship with food and you need to have a healthy relationship with your body and you need to have a healthy relationship with exercise okay The reason why you should be doing a show is because you want to celebrate yourself, okay? You love yourself. You want to celebrate your hard work and your achievements, but you shouldn't be doing a bodybuilding show because you hate your body and you want to punish yourself and you want to put yourself through some sort of very tough endeavor, right? Mm. Like, yes, it should be a challenge, but it should purely come from a place of self-love and celebration rather than just, yeah, really just not liking who you are. I think that is so freaking important. And also... What about competitiveness? Well, of course you should be competitive. (laughs) Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. And I think... Like you definitely shouldn't be competing to because you want to change your body to look a certain way because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, the body you end up with isn't sustainable anyway. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think doing it out of a place of self-worth and mm-hmm. not because you want to change the way you look. I think you, of course, the, the changes you get are cool and it's amazing seeing your body like that, yeah. but it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. And I yeah, of course, I think that competitiveness it doesn't have to play a part of course like you can compete just because you want to compete you don't have to care at all which placing you get competitiveness is just another element to that like that's why they have pro status like when you win you turn pro well at the same time it is called a competition you know so it kind of makes sense to be a bit competitive 
But I just think that engaging in bodybuilding, if you are involved in this health and fitness lifestyle and you love going to the gym, you know, and getting stronger and eating well, I just think it's such a wonderful way to celebrate your hard work. You know, it's just such a wonderful way to really challenge yourself and like go down that avenue to see what you're truly capable of. I think, I think it's really freaking neat. So, but it's definitely for one of a kind. So that's the thing. You just have to make sure that you have a healthy relationship with your food and exercise and your body and everything before you ever engage in this. And, you know, coming back to a healthy relationship with food, it really ties in with everything we talked about, about being orthorexic, but also as well with food, it's so important to have a good starting place, okay? With your metabolic rate, you should be eating a decent amount of food relative to your body weight and the amount of muscle mass that you have in your energy expenditure right before you start a competition prep, okay? Because if you start a competition prep, right, and you've got a pretty good amount of weight to lose, right, pretty significant, and you're like 20 or 25 weeks out, but you're maintaining your current body composition on 1600 calories, literally, where do you go from there? So it's so important that, you know, you've, you've gotten your metabolic rate up to a certain spot, appropriate for you. Again, I, you wouldn't expect a 55 kilogram girl to be eating 4,000 calories or something. I'm not saying that, but I'm definitely saying you shouldn't be down there eating like 1500 calories at the start of a prep. So that's really important. So it just comes back to don't be scared to ask for help. You know, don't be scared to get a coach and just expand your knowledge and just be a sponge for learning. Right. And, ah, oh, gosh, I just, learn as much as you can, you know, try to engage with different people, people who are very well respected in the area and hold credentials, you know, and um, just providing good quality information. And yeah, pretty much get, get, a, get a coach, get, get a coach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, I think we've set a good foundation mm-hmm. there. And as always, if anyone has any questions, just uh, let us know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right, guys. So that was pretty much the last question for today. But one thing that we always finish on is one interesting thing that we learned this week. So Jack, what did you learn this week? Yeah, so this is something that I, I'm kind of cheating because I, I guess I already knew this, but Mike just explained it in a, Mike Isretail explained it in a great way on the most recent episode of Revive Stronger. And he basically obliterated the 21s for biceps and he went on like a five minute tirade about how awful they are and why they're like the bane of his existence. So, so can you explain to me what is the 21s for biceps? I don't, I don't even know fully. Like I wouldn't be able to give a breakdown, but I know it involves partial reps after <laughs> listening to Mike. And I think it's where you do like seven partials and then or maybe half of 21 partial Mm -hmm. even though that's an odd number and then you do half again of full reps or and then you hold it for a second (laughs) and like it just doesn't he yeah he basically said it just doesn't make sense because since when have partial reps ever been more beneficial than full range of motion unless you have a specific circumstance and don't they finish with the full range of motion yeah yeah that's that's just counterintuitive (laughs) yeah if anything you would mike said if you want to do it um, a bit better than do 21s and then start with a full range of motion and then once you can't do any full range of motion you then do partials mm-hmm. and like yeah if you just want to listen to Mike paying out 21s and he kind of is a bit mean to the question asker but I guess uh, it's all it's all yeah. part of the 
It's more what Mike does. Yeah, because that really is backwards, you know, because usually you see someone's form degrade, right? So for example, let's say someone's doing a set of 10 squats, right? Their first few reps, they might be hitting depth. Then they're like, oh shit, I can't really hit depth anymore with this same weight. So they start doing half squats and then before you know it, they're just kind of bouncing at their knees, calling it reps. So. Yeah, <laughs> it's just a way of asking for knee problems, I yeah. think. Or, there's, yeah, there's there's just so many training things that I kind of just roll my eyes out, mm-hmm. roll my eyes yeah. at a little bit. The ones that really get me, man, are things that girls do on Instagram with flipping cable machines. Like, yeah. I understand the novelty of exercises, but I mean, like... Guys, there are gyms now that are so freaking big with so many different pieces of equipment. Like, there's variety out there, okay? (laughs) You don't need to create even more variety because you'll see someone, right? They'll go on a cable machine and they'll they'll attach that bar, right? And they might, like, start in a squat. And they, they go up and they go in a squat and then they, like then pull it in as if it's a seated row and then they push it over their head like an overhead press. It's if, like... just, if anything, you're just going to get the gym bro angry because you're hogging that for like exactly. half an hour. Exactly. This dude's like, excuse me, can I please do chest flies? So you're like, oh no, sorry, I'm doing my cable squat row OHP. Like, still got three sets left or something of 100 reps. But like, man, like you don't... <laughs> Ah, oh, it just drives me nuts. I'm like, what the hell is this even working? And the resistance curves are all wrong. And <laughs> oh boy, the things you see on Instagram. Oh well. It gets a few thousand likes, so that's is... true. You know, whatever. You do it for the followers, man. <laughs> what did you learn? Uh, this week, so I just I learned a little bit about vaccines, which I just thought was really interesting because obviously everything going on with coronavirus right now, there's hundreds of labs across the world trying to come up with a vaccine. But the thing is, is that even if we discover, right, a vaccine that is effective, we really have to think about the manufacturing and the distribution of that vaccine. And the thing is, is that there's over 7 billion people on the planet, but with all of the different manufacturers that can actually produce a vaccine in the world. And that's, I'm pretty sure if every single vaccine place was dedicated to producing a vaccine for coronavirus, I think there's only just over 6 billion that could actually be produced within one year. And another issue with that is that some of these clinical trials that they're doing that are showing some promises, you actually need more than one injection. So you potentially need two different types of vaccines. So double that by two, that's 12 billion, right? vaccines. And also that's if we only use all of these different vaccine places just for coronavirus. But as we know, there's so many other very, very important vaccines, especially that you need to get as a child, right? So if we dedicate all of these vaccines place to just making sure people are vaccinated and safe from coronavirus, what about things like measles and rubella, right? That you need to get these vaccines as a kid so that you don't get these sort of diseases. So huge issues man like it's not just about producing a vaccine and voila you know the world is safe no one's gonna get the coronas right there's a hell of a lot more that goes into it than that so oh it's a really sticky situation man yeah yeah it's gonna be interesting situation and especially for like people who don't want to get the vaccinations Mm -hmm. like will they be able to travel will they even be able to go interstate who knows? Yeah, man, it's gonna be it's gonna be really tough for all those anti-vaxxers out there. I I can I can confidently say Jack and I definitely are not anti-vaxxers, but uh, man, if they actually impose it on them, like, is it gonna be a legal requirement that you get this? Otherwise, 
are you going to have to self-isolate for the rest of your life or something? Mm. Yeah. Can you never leave Australia, your designated country? Boy, it's, uh, it's gonna, it's an interesting time and it just keeps getting more interesting. That's for sure. All right, guys. So this is the end of our 85th episode. Again, thanks so much for tuning in. If you did enjoy it, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, and we'll catch you next week. See you guys.